Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. So as we've said already several times, we are entering into our season of Advent. So we're taking a break from our time in the book of Revelation, which we'll get back to, Lord willing, in the, in the new year. And we are continuing the, the series in some manner that we did last year by looking at songs. This year, they're all songs that begin with the word O as a little bit of a fun part. But we're also narrowing down to look at the birth narratives of Jesus as given in the Gospel of Matthew. That's where we'll be spending our time this Advent season. And we begin with Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. As he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. This is what we do every week. We thank you that you have gifted us with your word. We thank you that you have gifted us with your spirit who illumines your word. Lord, may we see it clearly. May we sit under it. May we be changed by it, conformed more and more into your image. May that be worshipful to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Holidays. In some manner, that's what Advent is. The word holiday actually uh, derives from the word holy day. Although many holidays that we have are anything but holy, but we have them anyway. Holidays kind of cover a wide range of things, right? We have what some may call personal holidays, like birthdays and anniversaries. And there's something interesting about birthdays and anniversaries, right? Because with them we're pretty accurate on why we celebrate. We know why we're celebrating our birthday or an anniversary, or maybe we're memorializing an anniversary from a loss, but we know what we're doing. But in addition to personal holidays, we might have something that we call, well, we do have something that we call national holidays, like Independence Day. But that's more well-known just by the date, right? Fourth of July which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It's the sign that we're all in into summer, that we're gonna have fireworks, and we're gonna grill out, and we tip our hat to the independence of the nation, but we don't pay much attention to that. That's not really the focal point. None of us have any experience of not being independent. And so we don't do that so well. So we have personal holidays, we have national holidays, 
And we have ecclesial holidays or church holidays, like Christmas and Easter, neither of which the culture rightly celebrates. Easter, which is the core of the Christian church, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has somehow been associated with a a rabbit and lots of candy and Easter egg hunts. I don't know why eggs get the title Easter, but okay. Um, We have them and we do them. And sometimes we'll put a little connection to to the resurrection by baking something with an egg in the middle that symbolizes resurrection. But it's really about rabbits and chocolate. And Christmas the same, and we know this. We always say this every year at Christmas, but it's commercialized. It's got Santa. It's got gift-giving. And and there's an interesting thing about Christmas too, right? Because we spend so much time trying to maintain the sacred without acknowledging the sacred. Christmas is special because it's about family and friends and about gathering. And we want to make that so special without acknowledging the incarnation. But here's the thing. The question that we do well to ask in light of that observation, why do we celebrate Christmas? And of course, the simple and profound answer is Jesus. Is the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. But if we fail to recognize the gravity of our predicament, the severity of our situation, if we fail to do that, then we have no hope of rightly celebrating Christmas. What Matthew declares in these few verses are two very profound things. One is the nature of Christ as fully human and fully divine. And secondly, the work of Christ. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because we recognize that we are hopelessly sinful and rightly deserving of the wrath of God And God, in his great love and mercy, has acknowledged that need and met that need in his son, Jesus, who Matthew tells us, or or Joseph is told by the Spirit, will be named Jesus. Why? Because he has come to do what? To save his people from their sin. That is the work of Jesus. That's why he came. And that's why we're charged to celebrate, because that is indeed very good news. But you might notice something here. We're in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, but we're starting about two-thirds of the way through. We skipped something. Genealogy. You're all going, we were hoping that you would continue to skip the genealogy. Because it's notoriously boring. Genealogies are boring. Let's admit it. That's what they, they are. Although it's interesting to note that there is a resurgence of interest in genealogies. One need only look at the popularity of such things as Ancestry.com. But there's a big difference between the modern interest and the ancient purpose. And that is this. If I get an account with Ancestry.com, if I do the work of trying to figure out who my ancestors are, looking at my lineage, all good things, there's nothing wrong with it, it's sourced by me. I want to learn about me. I want to learn about my past. I want to discover things about who I am and my origins. But in the ancient Near East, and in particular in Judaism, uh, genealogies had a very different purpose. 
They were written by other people to authenticate a different person. In this case, Jesus. The genealogies are meant to give authentication. Now, you'll notice that there's genealogies throughout Scripture. There's lots of them in the book of Genesis and various other places in the Old Testament. There's two primary ones in the New Testament. This is one. The Gospel of Luke gives us another. You might also be thinking about the place where Paul writes and says that genealogies are things you need to be careful about. Don't spend too much time with them. He's right. Here's an interesting thing to note about the two primary genealogies that exist in the New Testament. They're different. They're genealogies about Jesus, and yet they're different. They're different in a number of ways. Matthew's genealogy begins with Abraham and takes us to Jesus, trying to authenticate that Jesus comes from the line of David and of Abraham. We'll see that in a minute. Luke actually begins with Jesus and works his way backwards, not just to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam, who is the son of God. So a little bit of a different dynamic, but there's something else different too. A number of the names in the genealogies are different. Well, what's up with that? What's going on there? How can they both be authentic? And there's lots of different theories, but let me just give you two that I think work together that I think make a ton of sense about how to understand that. Firstly, uh, one is that Matthew is tracing the lineage of Jesus through Joseph and Luke is doing it through Mary. There's, there's a strong argument to be made for that. But an even stronger argument is made this way, that Matthew is tracing Jesus' lineage through legal relationships, which is what Joseph is, by the way. Joseph is not Jesus' biological father, but he is his legal father, and his lineage matters because of the legal status of him as father. Whereas Mary, the argument for Luke is that it's following the biological line. There's some questions about that too because both genealogies mention Joseph and both mention Joseph acknowledging that he's not the biological father of Jesus. Matthew puts a little bit more emphasis in it than Luke does, but nonetheless they do mention that. In Matthew he says it this way, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So a distinction not the biological father, but the father, legally. So here's what I want to do here. I don't want to spend a ton of time here, but I do want to point out why it is that Matthew starts with uh, genealogy. And I'm doing it for two reasons. One, because that's what Matthew does. And two, because as I always say to you, context matters. So the first thing we want to do is just see this. Here's how Matthew shapes his genealogy of Jesus he opens up with this verse. This is verse 1 of the Gospel of Matthew. The book or the record or the scroll, depending on how you translate that. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So again, Matthew is interested in creating a lineage authenticating Jesus as the one who comes from the line of David, of the line of Abraham, authenticating his role as the promised Messiah. What we get in the middle, verses 2 through 16, is the genealogy under three different divisions, each with 14 generations. But here's the divisions, Abraham to David, and let's just make, it, make an observation here. He starts with Abraham. Who is who? Who is Abraham? He's the father of the Jews. Abraham is a Jew not because of blood or, or, or 
ethnic orientation because there was no such thing as Jews. Abraham was a pagan who worshiped many gods. And God said to him, you are mine, and I call you to be a part. Thus, you become Jew because you are my people. And from you will come many, which is why it is that Abraham, who was first Abram, becomes Abraham. His name changes. And in the Hebrew, the am, the suffix am, actually means many. It's pluralizing his name, which is an interesting grammatical thing. But it's basically a way of saying Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham because he will be the father of many. And so we go from the origins of Judaism to its peak in the Davidic kingdom. And then we go from its peak in the Davidic kingdom to its low point in exile, what Matthew calls the deportation to Babylon, exile. And then from its low point in exile to Jesus. So it's just interesting to note that. That's the, that's the way it lays out. And then verse 17, right before our verse, kind of lays out this threefold division this way. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So why take the time to point that out? Well, because as I said, context matters. Matthew does it. But here's what I want you to see. Matthew's making a case. He's making a case for the authenticity of Jesus as the promised Messiah. And he's going to bring to bear three important things that you would do in making a case. The first is the genealogical evidence, which we just get in the beginning of chapter 1. This matters greatly in the ancient world. Lineage matters. Where you come from matters. This is why we read from Romans chapter 1. Because Jesus, who according to the flesh comes from David, but according to the spirit and the power of resurrection. So we see both his human lineage and his divinity there as well. So Matthew's case is built on three things. Firstly, genealogical evidence. Secondly, testimony. It is in there. There it is, testimony. And then for, uh, uh, thirdly, prophetic fulfillment. So testimony is what we're going to read in our verses this morning. And then prophetic fulfillment, Lord willing, we'll see next week. So three comp- components to Matthew's case. So he begins with the genealogical evidence. And then we get testimony. Here's what we see. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So what he's saying is, here's the line from where Jesus comes. Now let's focus in on the event itself. Let me give you some testimony about exactly how it happened. Because not only does the line matter, but the way in which he was born is of profound significance. And I'm not just going to give you the testimony to validate that, but I'm also going to back it by saying that the way he was born also fulfills prophetic testimony, a prophetic uh, fulfillment, right? So he's going to go later on. We're going to see that, Lord willing, next week to Isaiah and talk about the virgin who was a child. And so what we read here is this is how the birth of Christ took place in this way. And we read this, when his mother, Mary, whose mother? Jesus' mother. So what do we see right there in brief form? His humanity When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. So a couple things, and you've probably heard this before, but betrothal is significant. It's more than engagement. It has a legal significance to it. Mary had been betrothed to Joseph 
before they came together, which means before they had any intimacy, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, it's kind of an interesting thing to note that not only in Mary's day, but even in the modern world, up until very modern world, for a woman to be pregnant outside of marriage was scandalous. It certainly was so in Mary's day. Quite scandalous. And so, this is a shocking thing, but Matthew begins by telling us the child is actually from the Holy Spirit, so we don't get that once. We get it twice in these short verses. And here's what we read. And her husband, which by the way speaks to the significance of betrothal, in the legal binding agreement that is betrothal, Joseph actually is already husband. He's a just man, which means he, he, doesn't, he can't marry someone who by all accounts has been unfaithful. But, but he's also a gracious man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolves to divorce her quietly. Well, they're not married yet. It's a divorce is required. So again, this speaks to the significance of the legal binding of betrothal. But as he considered these things, as he pondered or thought deeply on these things, you could almost say as he meditated on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying what? Joseph, and don't miss this, son of David, more validation of the genealogical line right here. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Again, from the Holy Spirit. So here's what I want you to see. In these short verses, Joseph hears from from the, the angel of the Lord, and we are told two things. One is that Jesus is is born of Mary and born of the Holy Spirit. So what we see is what the church later works out to be, be doctrinally true, that Jesus is fully human and fully divine. Now sometimes when we speak about, about Jesus, we use this term, we say that we speak about his person and his work. Now maybe you've heard of that term before, but that's a way of describing Jesus. So we're looking at the nature of Jesus as fully human and fully divine, that speaks to his personhood. But here's an interesting question to ask, something to think about. Where does Jesus' personhood come from? Does it come from his divinity or from his humanity? Now, maybe you're thinking both. But the answer is it's from his divinity and not from his humanity. You and I get our personhood from our, our humanity. Jesus does not. Because that would imply that somehow he was without personhood up until the time of the incarnation the second person of the Godhead. His eternal status means that he has personhood. We sing about this when we sing the famous hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. What do we say? God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. So Jesus does not acquire a second personhood when he takes on humanity. The personhood of Jesus in his incarnation remains solely sourced in his eternal deity. But not only are we talking about his personhood, but his work. What has he come to do? The angel continues to speak to Joseph in the dream. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Which means he will save his people from their sins.
So we have the person in the fully human and fully divine God-man, as Paul calls him. And we have the work in his atoning work to save his people from their sins. Both are necessary. No man could do this and account for that. Only the God-man could atone for the sins of mankind and take their place. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Why do we celebrate Christmas? Because we have a need of a Savior. And we rejoice in that very, very good news. What we're going to do here in a moment after communion is sing from our first O song, which is, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And one of the verses that I want you to think about here is this verse. It says this, It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of his precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. This is the nature of the joy of celebration that comes at Christmas. This is what we celebrate when we think about the incarnation of of Christ. That God himself comes in the flesh to take on our sin after living a perfectly obedient life. This is the good news. This is why we celebrate Advent. And this is the hope that we have for his second coming because he will come back to gather those whom he died to save and bring them to him for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, which is something that we spoke about and we'll speak more about in Revelation, as Ernie pointed out. And so we want to celebrate that. And so at this time, we're going to come uh, to our time of communion with this in mind. And as the elements are being distributed, let me encourage you That this table is a table of grace. It's for all who believe in Jesus Christ. All who believe he is the God-man and came to die for your sins and shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. But it is also a a table that is not just gracious, but is cause for judgment. If we do not rightly confess our sin, Paul says that we would eat and drink judgment upon ourselves. So I charge you to take carefully and confessed of your sin. Which is part of why we have confession in our service. He's added that in. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this table. We say very often, but it's still true, this visible display of the gospel. The word seen, as it were. We ask that at this time you would, by your Spirit, set 
these elements, this cup and this bread apart for a holy purpose that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Pray this in your mighty name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.